Maggie Sisters, an inspirational Western Australian, born in Capel in the southwest and now based in Broome. Maggie's devoted more than 20 years to working with the sick and poor in India. Most of her work centred around the New Hope Leprosy Trust and she's with us on Afternoons to tell us about her work. Hi Maggie. Hi Gillian. So look, let's, let's start at the beginning of your contact with India. What drew you there? I was fortunate to have a friend who was a pen pal of the man who started um, New Hope Trust because it's an Indian trust. It's not affiliated with any other uh, trust. And um, I took the opportunity. I was going once and give them a hand because I'm a nurse and they were starting immunisation programs up with these tribal people. So that's what took me there the first time. And what did you find? Tell us about when you got there and how it was well, for you. When I got to the Munaguda Community Centre, you know, Indians always want to please you. And so the way they'd written to me, I had assumed that there was a community centre. And I got there in the middle of the night after push starting a jeep to get there to find in the morning that there was one long mud hut and in that were 45 disabled children and they were all crawling around, they were all polio uh, problems and um, into the bush for their toilet and so I was pretty shocked and then when the director Elijah came for me he asked him where the medical room was and that was just one end of the children's room and consisted of a pressure cooker and a couple of old kidney dishes and the old glass syringes with reusable needles. So it was not what I expected to go to. And then to find that I was the first white person they'd ever seen in that area. Uh, was, that must have been quite confronting. Well, it freaked on me both out. Sides. Yeah, <laughs> they were freaked. I was freaked. I just assumed that because the British had been there for so long, it never occurred to me that there'd be tribal people that deep in that, you know, they don't even know who their prime minister is. I mean, they're very tribal. How did they relate to you? Well, at first it was a bit of fear because they can't, you know, weren't quite sure just what I was about, and then so that took some getting over. And then the second year I went, they decided I must have some magic because of my colour and everything. So then we had to stop them, you know, bowing down and scraping the floor. So we got wise after that and we used to send a photograph of me to new villages before I arrived so they'd, you know, get the story and understand a little bit more. And now, gosh, you know, I'm seeing some of them, their grandchildren and, you know, it's just a... I can go anywhere in that area and be safe. Tell us about the medical problems that you encountered there when you when you started. Obviously, the medical facilities were non-existent. Non-existent. Um, our main work to start with was leprosy. And uh, in fairness, the Indian government paid for those drugs because it's curable now. They paid for those and also helped with a jeep. But the jeep soon broke down, as I said, and we had to push start it because there were no roads where we were going. So quite often we walked. When we got to the villages, we realised that you can't just walk past people who are ill. Polio was rife. In one area of um, villages, I lost three children in the afternoon to whooping cough, and they were so malnourished they just didn't have the strength to fight the whooping cough. So I was pretty shocked um, at the whole situation. Malnutrition was just rife and children were blind through lack of uh, vitamin A 
So there was, we had to start the work. So we split it a bit, and the leprosy work, we were getting some help with that financially. The leprosy colonies, we don't get any help. We have three. We have about 200 old leprosy patients in colonies that we look after. And the rest we have devoted mainly to uh, immunisation. Tribal women, I do a lot of work with the tribal women, and it's been an astounding success with them. And immunising. And the difference in 21 years is just, it's just wonderful. For an instance, on our sponsorship brochure, we've had to cross out uh, to sponsor corrective surgery for a polio child because we don't have any more. And I didn't see that. I thought I'd see that in my lifetime, seriously. I was just, still, I'm goosey now. It's a wonderful achievement by them. Over 500,000 people we've seen. And uh, the second one we've crossed out is to for money for a small hut for leprosy patients. And we've achieved that. All our patients have a little hut um, and before they live just in lean-tos, etc. So that's... The, and the tribal women, you know, when I first went there, the, their esteem was in the ground. They just didn't have any and they were not dirty. They're very clean people, but very old saris and... Uh, very drab and after we did nutrition programs with them and birth delivery and all that type of work now when you see them they've got a good sari on and that's also through their credit and savings scheme that we started they've got a bit more money hair's done flowers in the hair smiling face kids hairs all combed they're all immaculate and that's a totally different picture to what it was and how big a problem is leprosy still in India? Even you say it's yeah. it's curable, but still an issue. In the tribal areas, there's still a bit about. It is in the cities. It's pretty well okay. There's lots of signage, and they basically know that it's curable. In the tribal areas, they still see it as badness come from the gods because you were bad in a former life. So as soon as you've got leprosy, you're tipped out of the. As soon as they can see the sign of it, they're tipped out and that's how colonies get formed. People find each other in the area and, you know, try and make a life all together. Um, But our work with leprosy is not nearly as large as it was. We have the only surgical hospital in the tribal areas and... um, we used to have 90 patients staying at a time, having reconstructive surgery in their hands. Leprosy, one of the signs of it, that you've got it, is a clawed hand. So if you straighten that hand and give them the medication, they literally have got a new life. They can go back to their village, they no longer have the signs of it, and they're cured. So that's lessened as we've got around and done the work. That must be just incredible considering, I mean, there, as you mm. talk d- about not just the medical effects of it, but being tipped out of, mm. of your cultural group to yeah. be able to go back into that must be amazing. And, and in the leprosy colonies, there's not much caste system because of that fact that they've all had to just somehow find another lot and get a group and then start a village of their own, you know, which we call the colony. It's very difficult for them because they're not well. That's the thing. And the main colony that we work with, Janjua, how we found that was Elijah was walking on the railway track above where they are and smelt it and realised that something, he's he's the son of a leprosy patient, so he's got great, you know, uh, practical knowledge and has lived in a leprosy colony. 
and he went under the bridge and there was this group of about 80 people just living under the bridge, sick. You know, I mean, they were sick. And that's how Janjua Colony started. I'm talking to Maggie's sister, who's the author of Sister, Sister, The Lives of Two Women and her work centres around the New Hope Leprosy Trust. You must be an incredibly... Or, I mean, you tell me how you confront those sorts of situations and stay removed or do you not? No, you can't stay removed. I think while you're doing the work, and now we do a lot with HIV hospice, um, aged children, and we have a child's hospital and we also have a mother and child hospital, so we've got two. And, you know, we have people die and I'm dealing with a lot of time people that just for the sake of some medical treatment that's all they need, you know. But it's like anything, Gillian. When you're in the middle of a crisis, you get on with it and you deal with it. It's after, you know. And I've had many a night crying in my room that they built for me at New Hope, you know, wondering if I've done enough or have I done the right thing. I'm not a doctor, um, but I've taken the – I wanted to go there. So you have to take that responsibility. If you're going to walk into that situation, you just have to do your best. But sometimes you're working a bit blind, you know, you think, I think this is the right thing. So I have a lot of that sort of thing. And then I find when I come home, um, I shouldn't tell people this, but I usually fib and come home um, earlier than I tell everybody for about a week and stay home because that's when... I find that's when I'm very emotional and I get really cranky, you know, to see on the TV or uh, go to the supermarket and there's two aisles of dog and cat food. It's really difficult to not get upset about that sort of thing. But, you know, after about three months, I'm back into target sales and, you know, everything like everybody else. But, yes, it does affect me. You go back every year? Yes. And you're planning to continue to do that? Yes, for the time being, as long as I've got the health, I will continue to do it because they've become another family to me. Um, I'm an only child and have very few relatives, have a wonderful partner, and they've really, in many sense, you know, become my family. And I've learnt an awful lot about myself, um, having to work up there alone with no other white people. Uh, you've got nothing else to do at night but confront your own <laughs> demons and, you know... They've taught me a tremendous amount, I feel. I've got as much as they've, I've given. It's not just one way. No, no. No. And what do you do when you're here? You, you spend a lot of your, your time talking to people about what's happening there? Yes, I drive. People duck after they've met me a couple of times because I'll have something that I want to raise money for always. And at the moment I'm really tough on doing. I'm trying to get as much sponsorship for our children as we can because India's growing up. We all know that. We have to give them a very good education. And we have not only disabled children, we have homeless children, what they call railway boys, um, children of leprosy patients. So they've got an address to go to school from and um, just orphans from the tsunami. So they must have a good education because no one's going to leave us unless they have a trade, a vocation through us, or they're going on to college, etc. And I'll just give you a quick example of that with sponsorship. As a young boy called Anil, his parents still live in the leprosy colony. He came to us when he was six 
and did all his schooling through us. Still with us, living with us, but he's just finished his master's in biology. That's wonderful. You know, so great. That's my aim is that we get this sponsorship, and that's difficult because I don't advertise on the radio or, you know, the paper or anything because that's taking money out. That if people are going to sponsor, I want to be able to say honestly, you know, that 98% of that money will be used for that person. And I want to be honest. And I think that's part of the success of New Hope. People are very generous and um, people, once they realise that all the money goes there, I pay my own expenses, then people want to know where their money's going. Often you give and you never hear another thing. You know? Or you're not sure, as you say, no. whether it's all going or it's all going in administration mm. costs, as you hear so much yes. nowadays. Well, look, advertise away, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how people okay. can help. Well, if you've got your pens ready, isn't that what they say? You know? um, go to our website, which is uh, newhopeaustralia.org, and you can click on to sponsor and you can do it that way easily. That's brilliant. Thank Mm. you very much for coming in to talk to us. Maggie's sister.